What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks very much, Melissa Lee. I am Dominic Chu, and here is what's ahead on The Exchange. The Archegos drama could be being, becoming one of the largest margin calls and liquidations of all time, but there seems to be no real systemic impact. We'll look at possibly why. Plus, buyback binge after a huge slowdown in 2020. Companies are making their way back into the market in a very big way. Could it lead to another leg higher in the overall stock market? And is the hot SPAC market finally starting to cool off just a bit? And if so, what should investors in the space be worried about? But let's begin with the markets at this hour. We are seeing a down day across the board, although just modestly so. If you take a look at the Dow Industrials so far, we're off just about 130 points near the lows of the session. But again, just fractional declines down about a little less than one half of one percent. The S&P 500 off about one half of one percent as well. Thirty nine fifty two the last trade there. And the Nasdaq composite hovering just around the 13000 mark there off about one third of one percent. Interest rates again a focus. We are at 14 month highs for the 10 year U.S. Treasury note yield. Currently just about one point seven two four percent. That's off the highs of the session so far. But again, you can see that sharp move higher just over the course of the year to day period. A big move in interest rates that's having reverberations across the market. Now, a couple places we're seeing things play out with regard to those interest rates is the rise in bank stocks. They've been beaten up a little bit as of late, but still Fifth Third Bank Corp up three percent. Wells Fargo up two percent. Bank of America up two percent. Regents Financial and also the ETFs that track them all up again on the day. Interest rates playing a big part of that discussion. And we'll check out some of the U.S. media companies that have been at the heart of a lot of the hedge fund talk these days. Viacom CBS up a decent 7% right now and Discovery Communications up 9% as well. Speaking of those names, questions continue to swirl about the margin call meltdown forcing hedge fund Archegos to sell more than $20 billion worth of stock last week. Despite what could become one of the largest liquidations of all time, there does not appear to be much market reaction to this. This was not the case back in 1998 when hedge fund long-term capital collapsed, forcing a bailout by the Fed, and 14 financial institutions were involved. So what's the same and what's different now? Jim Rickards was the general counsel for long-term capital back in 1998. He's also the author of a current Wall Street Journal bestseller, The New Great Depression, Post-Pandemic, Winners and Losers, Jim Rickards joins us now. Jim, thank you so much for being here with us. You had a very, very big and very front row seat view to what happened at Long Term Capital. Take us through what exactly you see similarly and different about Archegos versus Long Term today and then. Sure, Dominic. Great to be with you. Yeah, there are a lot of similarities and it's kind of the it's not, I don't know if it's scary or humorous, but LTCM was 22 years ago. There were definite mistakes made. They were identified at the time. Everyone said, we have to fix this. They were never fixed. Here we are in uh, 2021 with the same scenario playing out again. We'll see uh, if there's more contagion. But, you know, at the time, the criticisms of LTCM were obvious. It was over-leveraged, non-transparent, 
Uh, and in particular, um, everyone knew we were a fixed income arbitrage firm. Very few people realized we were the largest risk arbitrage firm. We had enormous multi-billion dollar positions in stocks. And that's what really kind of freaked out the Fed and, and Wall Street. Um, but we did it all through derivative form, you know, basket swaps, equity swaps, and so forth. Um, we kept it to 4.9%, but none of that was publicly disclosed. Now, Archegos is the same thing, except they blew through the 5%. And that's, you know, it's a little bit of a gray area legally, but I'll leave that to uh, to the lawyers. But they were up to 10% in some of these positions. Uh, but they never had to report it because it was in derivative form. But in 1998, Brooksley Bourne, who was the head of the CFTC, said, you know, you really ought to to the SEC, you really ought to change the rules and require some reporting or transparency on that. She was squashed by, you know, the Boys Club, uh, Bob Rubin, Larry Summers, and Alan Greenspan, and nothing ever happened. So someone said to me the other day in Arcadios, dude, why don't, you know, we really ought to change the rules so they report this. I said, well, they said that 22 years ago, and it never happened. So, so, Jim, let me get this straight here. I mean, we know that derivatives have been a huge focus of this, the, the opacity, the lack of transparency, the, the way that if I look at the holders of a certain stock, sometimes it just says maybe a name hypothetically like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, but that they're doing it with regard to derivative transactions with clients of theirs, but they're the ones who are owners of record. Now, now I get all of that. Why is it then that we are not seeing as much of the contagion type effect right now that we did see with long term capital? I mean, global markets were roiled because of a what will be even inflation adjusted a far less of an amount for long term capital's eventual bailout than what's what's going to happen with Archegos. Well, that's right. But remember, the, the LTCM bailout, the rescue money, was uh, about $4 billion. That's a lot of cash to come up with in a few days. But the, the book was $1.4 trillion. So the, the notional value of the, of the book that LTCM had, and of course, all the counterparty risk, because there were banks on the other side of all those trades, that was $1.4 trillion. And that was really what uh, concerned markets. We, if we had not pulled off that rescue, global markets would have just shut down around the world, at least for, at least for a while. That's how bad it was. But here's, here's the thing, Dominic. The, the LTCM came to head in August, September 1998. But it actually started in July 1997 when Thailand devalued the bot. That was the currency. They were pegged to the dollar. They broke the peg. That started a capital flight out of Asia. It went to Indonesia, um, uh, Korea. Uh, there was contagion. Then it come down a little bit. Then eventually Russia and then back to LTCM. Come, come forward to 2008. Everyone remembers September 15, 2008, the Lehman Brothers collapse and AIG after that. I mean, Morgan Stanley was hanging by a thread. But that actually started in late July 1997 when those two Bear Stearns hedge funds uh, collapsed. Bear Stearns itself collapsed uh, the following year. But they, sh- they shut down those two hedge funds. And there was the famous Jim Cramer, you know, they know nothing. And, 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 and Cramer was right about that. My point is, in both cases, it took over a year to come to a head. So hopefully this thing is contained. Uh, that would be the best result. But it's uh, it's way too soon to say that there won't be contagion here because sometimes it could take a year. So, Jim, Jim, uh, let, let's kind of kind of look at the, the perspective of what it was like with long term capital versus what it's like with Archegos today. Is there any difference with regard to the risk management profiles, the, 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 the idea that prime brokers these days are treating risk management a little bit different? Ha, have, has the industry learned a lesson over the course of several of these meltdowns over the course of the past 20 some years? No, the the industry uh, never learns. There was I mean, the biggest um, the biggest difference is that LTCM was so big 
that, you know, the Fed called on Wall Street and the Fed said, we're not bailing them out. No one expected that. But but you, the 14 banks, you better walk across the street. And they did. They went over to Merrill Lynch at the time and uh, put together a bailout package. And then we just no one slept for five days. And we got that done. It looks like our the difference with our is that there was no coordinated effort. It was sort of, you know, every firm for itself race for the exit. Some Goldman, as usual, gets out the door first. They're kind of OK. Others took larger losses. So this was more of a, a chaotic unwind, whereas LTCM was so big that it had to be a controlled unwind. But having so that's that's one big difference right there. But having said that, the mistakes were the same. Over leverage, non-transparency. See, each bank knows what they have on with the counterparty. Each bank knew what they had on with Archegos. They didn't know what the other banks had on. Uh, and Archegos itself was not transparent. Same thing with LTCM. We had 50 swap dealers, 50 banks around the world. Every bank knew what they had on with us. But nobody knew what we had. Only, only we did. So that's that's a, another problem uh, right there. But as I say, none of those things have changed. All right. Jim Rickards, thank you very much. Always great to get your perspective, sir. Thank you very much. We'll have to have you back on to talk a little bit about the fallout. If there is, we hope things are contained, at least for now. Thank you very much, Jim. Thanks. All right. We've seen a huge SPAC boom so far this year, but recently investor reaction has been more muted. So this is maybe just a temporary slowdown or is it perhaps a broader shakeout? Leslie Picker joins me now with the latest there on the SPAC boom and maybe slowdown. Leslie. Yeah, Dom, it's a really important question you just asked there. Tomorrow's SPACs are set to notch another record month of issuance in what's already become a record year. This week, they're expected to surpass $100 billion in capital raised. That threshold may get pushed to next week, but either way, it's imminent. And while the sellers of SPACs may be full steam ahead, the buyers... Well, they're souring a bit. Special purpose acquisition vehicles are shell entities that raise cash from the public markets to fund an unknown future acquisition. SPACs that are still searching for a merger have sold off in recent weeks, with the average price down about 11 percent from their February highs. Also notable, the proportion of SPACs trading above $10 has plummeted over the last few weeks. SPACs are typically priced at $10 per unit. That's the value of the cash that they're holding in their trust, which is also redeemable at $10. Any large discount to that level may imply investor concern that a viable deal uh, will be reached or will not be reached. There are other cracks forming as well. Nearly every SPAC that went public last week traded down in its debut, and the vast majority of them had to change their terms, including downsizing the deal to get enough investors to buy in. Now, the question, as you mentioned earlier, is whether this is just some short-term indigestion here or is there a longer-term shakeout looming in the SPAC landscape, Dom? All right, Leslie Picker, please stick around with us. Let's take a closer look at the state of SPACs. Your next guest is seeing fatigue in the market, which may be prone to volatility as these blank check deals start to mature. With us now is Jackie Rhesus, CEO of Post House Capital, also a board member of Bill Ackman's SPAC, Pershing Square Tontine Holdings. I, I mean, this is a fantastic move for this market Jackie, in in terms of special purpose acquisition companies, do deals need to get done imminently for these SPACs to at least maintain the momentum for the overall market? Sure. Well, let's just talk a little bit about what's happening in the overall market. I think you use the word fatigue and digestion, both good words. We've certainly seen a change in the tone of the market for high growth equities broadly since the third week of February. 
It's largely driven by the revised outlook of interest rates and also a reflection of the growth stock run-up that we saw last year, which was huge. And that volatility is likely to continue for a while as the equity markets digest relative values of growth versus value. That is not unique to the SPAC market. Um, You also said SPACs have seen record levels of IPOs. We've had as much SPAC issuance in the first two months as we did in all of last year. And so that's a dynamic that can't go on forever. It doesn't mean that there won't be issuance by high quality SPACs. The market has an incredible way of reinvigorating when a deal gets done that the market likes. So, so I mean, Jackie, does it, does it bother you as a, as a SPAC investor, as a SPAC sponsor, as, per, as somebody who's involved in these types of these special purpose acquisition companies, as the board member uh, of, of a large one right now, does it bother you to hear all of the chatter, the speculation about what you could be doing? What is it that you want to do? What is it, what, what is it that drives your value? Are, 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 what, what exactly do you have to do then from a from a SPAC perspective to maybe either tune those voices out or at least give them something to nibble on as you look for that big deal? Yeah, you know, it would be inappropriate for me to speak as a board member of any SPAC. So I'll, I'll speak broadly as a as a market investor and an observer on the market. Um, you know, when people look at doing SPACs, they, they look at the type of research that they should be doing as an investment, similar that they would in a private equity deal. And a buyer needs to take a thesis about the broad market and then believe that there's fundamentals within the company that are attractive for the future. Beyond that, there's a significant amount of diligence that gets done, whether it be business or legal or structure or accounting due diligence that's needed. And I think when you have a really strong M&A target and an opportunity to take a company public, the fundamentals will shine through. And I think that's what the market is observing. When you have a good deal, good deals trade well in the marketplace. Leslie Picker, let me turn to you really quickly here as well. What exactly do you think is driving some of that slowdown in momentum for these special purpose acquisition companies? I think Jackie's point about, you know, this being a a market that tilts toward value versus growth is a good one. You're seeing a lot of these SPACs merge with companies that are pre-revenue and they're you know, giving financial projections five years down the road where they would look like a company that's, you know, going public a traditional way. That's the epitome of about as as much growth as you can get at this point when you go from maybe zero to 500 billion uh, million in five years. Um, that said, I think there's also this realization that there is so much supply coming to the market. Uh, and once People start realizing, you know, potential lockups associated with some of these private placements they've been engaged in, uh, some deals that may have not turned out as well as people had hoped. Uh, Lucid and CCIV come to mind. That's Churchill Capital 4. Uh, that deal traded down when it was announced. All of those things are creating jitters that can impact sentiment and spill over into the broader SPAC landscape. All right, Jackie, I, I wonder with SPACs, the ones that seem to get the biggest juice, the most movement, the most volatility are always the ones that are tied to possible chatter or even outright acquisitions of quote unquote transformative type companies. Does a SPAC really need to engage in something that is quote unquote transformative, is if, whether or not it's electric vehicles or you know, artificial intelligence or quantum computing or something else like that, just to get the kind of buzz it needs to, to really monetize the value of the overall acquisition? 
I think there's a structural benefit of SPACs, which is why you're seeing this type of company included in the SPAC market. And that structural advantage, which was just noted, is that where you have the opportunity in an M&A transaction to present your vision for the future. And so companies that are growth oriented, that are vision oriented, align more with the overall structure of a SPAC. Um, you know, I do think there are three fundamental ways a company can go public. They can do a traditional IPO, they could do a direct list or a SPAC. And that one particular component of the way SPACs are structured just makes it naturally um, orient towards that kind of growth company. You do see every kind of industry represented, though, in SPACs. And there's also an interesting combination of strategy, of stage, and of sector that's being represented in deals now. As you have expert operators across the board, you have PE firms and VC shops, all of whom have entered the market and are looking at deals across the board in all of these verticals. All right. Jackie Reese's Post House Capital, thank you very much for joining us and our analysis picker as well. Thank you both. We'll see you guys soon. Well, coming up on the show, from Walmart to General Mills to UBS, companies are starting to buy back their stock again. Is this the beginning of a buying binge for corporations? And if so, is it a bullish sign for the market in the second half of the year? Plus, a new study shows most Americans are not financially prepared for retirement. We'll look at the reasons why. The exchange is back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stock buybacks have been part of the story behind the market's rise for years now, with companies helping to support stock prices and boost their own earnings reports at the same time. But the pandemic led many companies to pull back their horns, suspend buybacks and help save cash amid unprecedented business uncertainty. Just how far did buyback activity decrease in the year 2020? Well, S&P 500 companies paid out just shy of $520 billion last year for their own stock. That's nearly a 29% decline from just the year prior. But buybacks are showing some signs of life. In the second quarter, during the height of the pandemic, they were around $88 billion spent. 
by Q3, it was $101 billion. By the fourth quarter, it was $130 billion. Now, that acceleration in stock buybacks is gaining even more steam today, with analysts at Bank of America noting that we are now back to record levels in terms of corporate spending on buybacks. So which kind of companies are doing the most work? Where is all the buying happening? Well, it's technology. They spend about $56 billion worth there. Communication services, media companies, $16 billion. Healthcare companies spent $15 billion. And the financials, $13 billion spent on buybacks. The biggest share repurchasers are some of the usual suspects. We're talking about Apple, Berkshire Hathaway, Alphabet, Microsoft, Charter Communications, Oracle. So all of those guys are still, yes, buying back their own stock. Where do we go from here? For this year, Howard Silverblatt of S&P Dow Jones Indices says more companies are expected to return back to the buyback market as they look to have enough to cover their employee stock options and, depending on cash flow, reduce those share counts, giving a boost to their earnings per share. Big banks, which have received approval to resume buybacks in the coming weeks, are expected to be one of the bigger players in that market. And, of course, technology will continue to dominate as it has over the past few years. And, of course, we can't talk buybacks without bringing up Apple. Apple is the undisputed king. Did you know that Apple is now responsible for 13 of the 14 biggest quarterly buybacks of all time and each of the five biggest spends by any one company in a quarter? So could the return of the buyback put a floor beneath the market and lead to another leg higher? Let's now bring in Kim Forrest, chief investment officer with Boca Capital Partners and Ernesto Ramos, chief investment officer with BMO Global Asset Management Thank you both for being with us here. Kim, let me start with you. The buyback story, it's been supportive of the markets. Will it be again? Well, it certainly sounds so, and especially in technology, with the companies that have so much cash, they don't know what to do with it. I don't think anybody could accuse Microsoft of not being a wise user of its cash. And whenever they do acquisitions, they're pretty much writing a check for it. Um, not going and borrowing for it. So I think those are all more, oh, and these are the companies that do give stock options as part of the benefits packages. So it is, you know, kind of a more honest way to uh, conduct buybacks. You know, you have the cash and you're doing it for a reason. Is it a signal, Ernesto, is it a signal that things are getting back to normal when companies feel comfortable enough to let those horns out again, so to speak, and go back and buy back their own stock? For sure. I mean, uh, 2020 was uh, very restricted in terms of buybacks. Uh, some of some of the sectors, like the banks, could not buy back their stock by by uh, by mandate or by by law. And now they're they're they've announced 35 billion. The financials have announced 35 billion dollars worth of buybacks coming coming forward. So it's a great way to return capital shareholders. Especially if you consider there's a tax differential, you're going to pay capital gains on those on those uh, stocks that you own versus if you get a dividend or a special dividend, you're going to get a tax as ordinary income. So it's a good way to to spend their money and return it to shareholders. So so Ernesto, if I might follow up there, if that is the case, is there a way that that investors play it? Is there a way that investors try to capitalize on this new resurgence and buybacks back to pre-pandemic levels? Well, uh, one of the sectors that we like is financials, and not because of the buybacks, but simply because it's so cheap. 
big banks are so cheap. Uh, you have uh, Citicorp, for example, trading at under 10 times earnings. And with the uh, the steepness of the yield curve that you see now, with value being back in, in play, with GDP growth for 2021 coming in some probably in the neighborhood of 7 plus percent, uh, banks are a great way to play all of those things in one single in one single uh, place, which is uh, by, buying uh, uh, that sector. So we like them for, for all those reasons. Kim, I, I wonder, I mentioned before the idea that companies buy back stock. It's a way of engineering better earnings per share. You reduce the share count and then everybody's earnings kind of go up in that in that way. You're an analyst by nature, by trade. Do you have to look beyond that to see whether or not a company's really healthy or whether or not the earnings growth is driven strictly by buybacks? I think you do, especially if you're a longer term holder. What you're trying to do is buy increasing cash flows. And yes, buybacks can at least, you know, your slice of the pie is getting larger by the company doing a ba- uh, buyback, but it also isn't necessarily growing the cash flow. Ultimately, what you want is a company that's growing that cash flow. And you have to do the math, make sure that this year's uh, share count isn't remarkably smaller than last year's, and just look at the cash. Maybe that's the easy way to do it, not on a cash per share basis. But just look at cash flow and see that, you know, the company's performing better last year or this year over last year. Kim, we just got a few moments left here. Any favorite parts of the market for you right now for the next six to nine months? Well, I do like technology always, but I actually am looking at materials and steel companies in particular, just given uh, the Biden administration's focus on infrastructure and, um, you know, uh, some spending that should be happening in America here. Is cyclical, Ernesto, before we let you go, is, is cyclical spending tied to infrastructure going to be the next big theme? I seem to recall every time a new presidential term starts, we always talk about infrastructure spending. Uh, we think so. I mean, the, the Biden is more committed to spending money. All right. I think we just lost Ernesto there with a the feed. All right. <laughs> we, think, we think it'll certainly be one of those, uh, one of the sectors. All right. Perfect. Thank you guys very much there for your thoughts. Ernesto uh, Ramos and Kim Forrest, thank you very much. We'll see you guys again soon. Well, coming up on the show, the good news is there's lots of consumer demand for goods out there. The bad news is there are lots of inventory shortages and higher costs could be right around the corner. We'll look at the retail reality that's coming up ahead. Plus, a CNBC exclusive investigation into what experts say is the financial crime bonanza of 2021. That's ahead. The exchange is back right after this. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now, as you can see here, 
down about 99 points roughly for the Dow Industrials. We were down about 182 points at the low of the day so far. The S&P off by one third of one percent, 14 points. The Nasdaq Composite off with just about one quarter of one percent. 13,032, the last trade there. Let's check the sectors as well. Financials, industrials, and consumer discretionary, your leading sectors here. Utilities and technology, the biggest laggard so far. Tech is down just about one-third of 1%. Now, here are some of the movers this hour. Land, sea, and air edition with the reopening trade back in the green today. First off, hotel stocks, Hyatt and Marriott and Hilton, all higher with Hyatt leading some of those gains. You can see they're roughly two to two and a half percent. Now to the cruise stocks on the ocean side of things, the water. Norwegian Carnival and Royal Caribbean higher across the board, up two percent as well. Part of that reopening trade. And then finally to the air. The airline stocks, JetBlue and American, both up more than 4%. As you can see there, JetBlue, American, United, Delta, all very much in the green. Now, let's go over to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. And I know Rahel is way over my shoulder over there, just by our news desk. So far, yet so close. Hi, Dom. Hello, everyone. Here is your CNBC News update. The teenager who shot that widely seen video of George Floyd's death is testifying at Derek Chauvin's trial. Darnella Frazier described what she saw and why she tried to keep her younger cousin away from the encounter. The court is not allowing her face to be shown. Yes, I see a man on the ground and I see a cop kneeling down on him. Was there anything about the scene that you didn't want your cousin to see? Yes. And what was that? A man terrified, scared, begging for his life. And you can get a wrap-up of today's testimony on the news with Shepard Smith. That, of course, airs tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. The U.S. and 13 other countries say that they're concerned that a study into the origins of COVID-19 by the World Health Organization was delayed and lacked access to complete data. The top doctor who worked on the report is urging patients and says that research on coronavirus continues. And more than 100 ships have moved through the Suez Canal today with heavy traffic in both directions. Over 300 vessels are still waiting in line. Dom, apparently it'll be about a week before they clear that traffic. I'll send it back to you. At least things are moving right now, Rahel. Agreed. Yeah. Thank you very much for that, Rahel Solomon. Coming up on the show, a new report from PwC revealing the staggering number of Americans with no, no retirement savings. How to change the industry coming up next. Plus, shares of Academy Sports and Outdoors more than doubling in price since its IPO back in October. Soaring again today on record sales figures. We'll speak with CEO Ken Hicks on what's driving that consumer demand. And do not miss CNBC's Race and Opportunity in America special tomorrow night, 8 p.m. Eastern time. I will join our hosts, Melissa Lee and John Fort, along with reporting from Seema Modi and Elon Moy to look at the economic and social challenges facing the Asian-American community against this backdrop of increasing violence today. The Exchange will be back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's talk about some retirement realities. A new report from PwC says that only 36% of Americans feel that their retirement planning is actually on track. And what's worse, a quarter of adults have no retirement savings at all. Zero. For more on how to address these issues, I'm joined by Bernadette Geis. She's PwC's U.S. Asset and Wealth Management team leader. Bernadette, thank you very much for joining us today. Let's take us through exactly what your findings were, just how dire of a situation is it for Americans as they come towards retirement? Yeah, we've done the studies, and and it is getting to be a crisis in this country. 
We have roughly 45 million Americans that are going to retire in the next 10 years. And the median savings is $120,000, which would equate to $1,000 a month over a 15-year period. So with life expectancies being well beyond 15 years and the you know, rising cost of health care and other retirement needs, $1,000 a month simply isn't going to be sufficient. All right. So, so, Bernadette, we know that there are different costs of living in certain places around the country. But is there a general rule of thumb as to just how much a person, a couple, a family needs to have saved for retirement to make sure that they don't outlive their savings? Yeah, they really need to embrace the tools that are available because there isn't a simple rule of thumb. Like you said, the combination of uh, how much work people intend to do in retirement because there's an increasing population that wants to continue to work, how to decumulate their savings over that retirement period, what they will need when is also very different. So what's important is people embrace the tools that are increasingly available for you to uh, estimate your savings need over different periods of your retirement, also based on your expected spending and whether you want to fund your own uh, retirement or those of your children and help them with college education and the like. Uh, those are all factors that need to be considered. When you look at the aggregate customer client base that you have at PwC for your practice, are there glaring holes? Are, are there certain commonalities for the biggest places people have the retirement risk, aside from just the fact that they aren't saving enough? Are there certain specific areas, certain specific parts of their financial plan that could use remedying? And, and how, do they, how do they do it? Yeah, it's sort of a set it, forget it. You know, the good news is people are mandatorily opting in for 401k plans when they have access to them. Uh, but they're often not evaluating their investment options over different periods of time. And there are amazing products like target date funds, which make the decision making so much easier than than 20 years ago when you were meant to allocate your assets yourselves. Uh, the low interest rate environment is creating additional headwinds. And so we see asset managers evaluating more creative products to provide access and investment options for real estate and, and private equity, which, as you read in the papers, have incredible upside and, and are another means in which people can uh, actively save for retirement despite a low interest rate environment. Bernadette, we, we know that there are changing trends with regard to housing and, 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 and living in America. It used to be the American dream to buy a home and own it by the time your 30-year fixed-rate mortgage was done. These days, we hear a lot more people want to rent rather than own. But, but all of that in, in, into consideration. How important is it to solidify your living situation physically uh, as you approach retirement? Is that going to be key as opposed to just saying, hey, I have money in the bank to spend in retirement as I, as I kind of go about my living? Well, people do use real estate and home equity as an asset to retire. So they sell their large home, take the equity and use that as another vehicle uh, to afford their long term living. So people that are not accumulating retirement through home equity need to be thinking about, well, where's that source of funding going to come from if it's not through that home? And again, it's putting it in the context of if you're going to need to use, um, continue to pay rent through retirement, do you have the right sources of income to continue to make those payments um, as opposed to the traditional source was sell a big house and use that to uh, fund your more modest living style. 
And Bernadette, before we let you go, just a few seconds left here. What's the biggest risk uh, for, uh, other than just not having enough money? Yeah, I think the um, financial education is the challenge and, and embracing the tools. And this is where the industry plays a big part and continue to lean in even more. Uh, the, the next generations are much more virtually adept at training and tools and are active in asset management uh, through virtual means. And so using that technology today to be able to support individuals' needs and provide them not only the education, but the tools to map out their retirement needs um, is a place where the asset management community can, can adapt, is adapting, and can help uh, serve a, a role to mitigate this crisis that we may, may be heading towards if we don't change today. All right, Bernadette Geis at PwC with a big warning out there for retirement in America. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Well, still ahead on the show, it's a one-two punch for cybercrime victims. Criminals are not just stealing identities to get PPP loans. Thieves are now using that information to create massive money laundering operations. Those details in CNBC's exclusive report, Steal and Conceal. That's coming up next. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to The Exchange. There's a new wrinkle in an old scam. Criminals defrauding the government of millions of dollars are finding a surprising way to multiply their stolen cash. Now, as Eamon Javers reports, they're using stolen identifications to get pandemic relief money from the government and then using those same IDs to open online investing accounts. Here's CNBC's investigation, Steal and Conceal. To me, it looks like they're trying to money launder scammed money, using my name to do that. The crime began last summer. Someone stole Mark Heiberg's identity and filed bogus paperwork to get a $28,000 pandemic disaster loan from the Small Business Administration. From there, the fraudster opened an account at Chase Bank under Heiberg's name and later opened another account with the stock trading platform Robinhood. Call it steal and conceal. Authorities say they're seeing more criminals committing this type of double-decker fraud. First, they steal the money from the government programs, and then they pump it into the investment accounts to hide the source of the funds and maybe even plus up their gains. Ultimately, they hope to turn it into hard-to-trace cash. But authorities say the victims are left with a huge headache. And that's exactly what I'm trying to find out is what are they doing with these funds? What financial transactions are occurring under my name, under my social security number? It's been a pretty big ordeal. A law enforcement source tells CNBC at least four investment platforms, Robinhood, TD Ameritrade, Fidelity and E-Trade, are being targeted by criminals. And the money is coming from the government's Paycheck Protection Program and the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. Secret Service Assistant Special Agent in Charge Roy Dotson won't discuss specific companies, but he tells CNBC more than $100 million has been funneled into investment accounts. And he says the platforms are making it harder for law enforcement to trace the funds. Financial crime expert Charles Intriago explains the massive scale of the pandemic relief funding has created a frenzy of fraud. I would call it the Financial Crime Bonanza Act of 2021 because it presents organized criminals and just even run-of-the-mill criminals with a golden opportunity to rip off millions and millions of dollars, enrich themselves, rather than that money going to the purposes that Congress lays out. Detective Ricardo Pena of the Coral Springs Police Department in South Florida led the investigation into Mark Heiberg's case and is part of a federal anti-fraud task force. 
He explains that a new breed of criminals is simply doing what comes naturally. A lot of people that are doing these frauds are younger, he tells us. Platforms like Robinhood are just easier to push money in and out. For Heiberg, the worry is what other frauds could be going on in his name. My good name means everything to me. I've, I've worked my whole life. I've worked 31 years for the same company. I've got boys. I've got family. I want their names to be intact as well. And, Dom, we reached out to all four investment platforms, Robinhood, TD Ameritrade, and Fidelity, all say they have tough anti-fraud protocols for verifying information. And they confirm they've been working with law enforcement to combat what appears to be an industry-wide problem. Now, E-Trade did not respond to our calls and emails. And Chase, where a fraudster was able to open an account, the bank there says it flagged that account as fraud and blocked a transfer of funds over to Robinhood, Dom. So, so Eamon... What what actually can these platforms do better with regard to making sure this kind of thing doesn't happen? Well, law enforcement tells us it wants the platforms to do a better job to know their customers by verifying the clients and monitoring these new accounts, especially those that are receiving the small business association funds and keeping an eye on fraud alerts related to COVID. The idea here ultimately is a communication back and forth between law enforcement and the platforms. They want that open dialogue because they say there's a lot of this going on. And whenever there's money moving fast and low in Washington, as there was with this relief funding, the, the goal was to just push it out as fast as possible. Law enforcement and policymakers know there's a real opportunity for fraud there. All right. KYC, know your customer. Always a big deal there. Eamon Javers, thank you very much with the investigation. Still ahead on the show, consumers may find empty shelves once again when they go shopping, but this time it's not the Lysol wipes or the toilet paper that could be missing. We'll explain what could be. That comes up next. Welcome back to The Exchange. While strong consumer demand sounds like great news for retailers, port congestion has made it difficult to keep up with all of that demand. Courtney Reagan joins me now with more on that story. Good afternoon, Courtney. Hi, Dom. Good to see you. So the National Retail Federation forecasts that retail sales will grow as much as 8.2% this year. Consumers are ready to shop, but will retailers have the inventory? West Coast port congestion that started about a year ago, in large part because of the demand for imported goods, has really only gotten worse. So consumers may find empty shelves when shopping with those stimulus checks in hand. 93% of retailers are experiencing inventory shortages, specifically from port congestion. This is according to a new NRF study. Some seasonal goods aren't arriving on time, and more than half of retailers report that congestion is adding at least three weeks of delays. Sure, contingency plans are in place, but those are costly and could increase the prices consumers ultimately pay. More than a third of retailers are shifting to some East Coast ports. Just less than a third are using air freight. 27% are using domestic sourcing or alternate West Coast ports. Deutsche Bank transport analyst Amit Matroa follows a key indicator of the dislocation that he's seeing at many retailers. Same sort of sales at Dollar Tree were up about 5% last quarter and inventory per store was down 5%. And so that's a 1,000 basis points or 10 percentage points difference between the sell-through rates and the inventory um, uh, cadence. And if you look at companies like Walmart, uh, Target, Tractor Supply, it's equally uh, uh, incredible to see the spreads between inventory and sales. 
Nike, Williams-Sonoma, RH, and Five Below are among the retailers that said inventory couldn't satisfy demand in the most recent quarter due to port delays. And they talked about that in earnings calls. Dom, often retailers don't talk much about the supply chain. It's sort of a competitive advantage secret they hold tight to. But in this case, the secret's out. All right, let's talk about the supply chain, Courtney. We're going to do that right now. Thank you very much for that. Let's stick with that retail story. Shares of Academy Sports and Outdoors are surging after reporting record fourth quarter results, including comparable store sales growth of more than 16 percent. The retailer invested heavily in omni-channel and supply chain to help combat issues like the port problems that Courtney just mentioned. Shares of ASO, that's the ticker, have now doubled since its public debut back in October of last year. For more, let's bring in Ken Hicks, the chairman and CEO of Academy Sports and Outdoors. Ken, thank you very much for joining us here on CNBC. Let's take us through what was the big driving force behind that successful quarter that you just reported. We have developed a strategy that was really focused on power merchandising, concentrating on what we really are, sports and outdoors, and building our service level in those stores and increasing our dot com. We also benefited, obviously, from uh, people as they took to more active lifestyle, being outdoors more. And all of those things together really created a record uh, quarter and a record year for us. How, how difficult was it, Ken, to, to ramp up that e-commerce effort, to, to, to transition those sales to the digital side of things, to, to kind of move with the pandemic trends, and, and then the supply chain issues as well. How quickly was it to, to adapt to some of those issues so that you didn't have the bottleneck problems that Courtney just mentioned? Well, with regard to .com, uh, we took probably longer than most to put in buy online pickup in store, but literally over a weekend, the team put together curbside pickup. So we really moved that aggressively. Uh, with regard to the supply chain, uh, we've been working hard. We, we've had issues with inventory last year. We are now in what I call an acceptable level uh, for inventory, uh, but we are seeing the challenges that Courtney talked about with containers, the ports. One of the advantages that we have is we're in Texas and we use the Galveston port. Uh, and that is not as congested as some of the other ports. So while we're seeing some slowdown, it it's, uh, hasn't really hampered our business. How do you keep, Ken, the momentum going? We, we know the trajectory of the virus is hopefully getting more contained in the coming months. How do you keep people coming back to your stores to spend that money on things like sports and outdoors? Well, one, there's a lot of new people to Academy and to the things that we sell. We added uh, over 5 million new shoppers uh, to our stores in the last year. Uh, and... Many of those people are new to us and new to the categories that we that we sell. So a lot of people picked up fishing, hiking, uh, you know, building a home gym. Sure. And those people are coming back to fill in uh, or or to build on to their their fishing gear that they've got. Of course. All right. Ken Hicks at Academy Sports and Outdoors. Thank you very much for that. And of course, a big quarter for you Thank guys you. as well. We appreciate it. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 